In the late 1940s, it was considered to be obvious by many that nuclear weapons were not just military options, but actually preferable and far more practical than many of the other military options on the table. This, of course, was the consequence of the atomic bombs that were dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima in Japan at the end of World War II. And it's generally understood that these bombs being dropped did not end the war, but they did save a substantial number of American lives, and potentially Japanese lives too. That might be a difficult argument to make, but I have seen it made, that essentially the military command in Japan was saying that they would fight to the last man. And consequently, if there was a more conventional American invasion of Japan launched, substantially more lives on both sides could have been lost. That, I'm sure, is not something that is too terribly comforting to the people who lost loved ones in the aftermath of the atomic bombs being dropped. But all the same, that was the thinking by many military experts at the time that these were weapons that represented the capacity to bypass typical military planning so that you could get rid of giant masses of enemy combatants or, more typically, hardened military targets in a much simpler manner and using one device rather than throwing a whole lot of military personnel and one's military arsenal at the issue. And so, in 1950, July of 1950, B-29 bombers, American B-29 bombers, were moved to Britain, armed with atomic bombs, but they were lacking the nuclear core, the core that would make them atomic and set off the atomic blast. And they did this to remind the Soviets of the American arsenal and our potential to drop such bombs, and what it might mean for them if they joined the fight in Korea if they threw their military might into the mix rather than playing at it from a distance the way that they did. Now, unfortunately, for those opposing the Chinese-backed North Koreans, what we now call North Koreans, in their attempt to conquer the peninsula, this implicit threat of us moving these very dangerous devices to a launch area where we could then potentially send them to the combat zone it actually helped them rally their people around the cause of opposing the American threat in Korea. And so a great number of Chinese and other entities in the region, in fact, were rallied to the cause of the communists in the area as a result of us kind of banging our own drum in this way. But eventually, it wasn't the threat of pushback from the Chinese or the communist Koreans or the Soviets that resulted in the U.S. not using nukes in Korea. It was actually a concern held by members of the U.N., in particular leaders from the U.K., the Commonwealth States, and France, that moving our nuclear pieces 
on the global chessboard in that way, and in doing so, reorganizing the state of play in that manner would dramatically weaken the Western European position relative to the Soviets. And they worried that if the U.S. reoriented completely toward China and Korea in the way that we would kind of have to if we started to declare full war in that way, the Chinese might be able to convince the Soviets to invade Western Europe, which of course would be very bad on multiple levels. There were a few trial runs for bombing the Chinese using bombers based in Japan. Again, bombers that had devices but had no atomic cores. But the weapons were never used because of the aforementioned geopolitical concerns elsewhere, but also because there weren't really any targets worth bombing in China at the time. It was difficult at that point in history to track large bodies of soldiers that would be worth bombing. And a lot of the local infrastructure wasn't really worth the expenditure of one of the very few very expensive atomic devices that the U.S. had in its arsenal at the time. Conventional weaponry made a whole lot more sense in almost every way, and it alleviated the concerns that the U.S. and China would become locked in general warfare as a result of their proxy war in Korea as well. And so this decision to not use nukes against a non-nuclear enemy and to save those nukes instead for potential use against the Soviets, who at the time had a very few and very rudimentary nuclear weapons of their own, it set a sort of precedent for the next several decades, which to a degree still exists today. And that precedent is to essentially use nuclear weapons as a deterrent rather than as a very expensive, very finite, very difficult to produce offensive tool that is commonly used in military action. It's, of course, impossible to say what would have happened had the U.S. used nukes during that conflict. Some think the Soviets may have used their own on Japan, or that the Chinese would have used their nuclear victimization, being the target of such an attack, to rally more of the governments in the surrounding area to their cause and to their banner, to their governmental type. But we do know that to this day, nuclear weapons remain a terrifying idea to most of the world. I think most people thinking about the use of nukes in warfare, it's something that is a truly terrifying concept for multiple reasons. And the politics around the use of nuclear weapons are are very tenuous. There have been a lot of moments in which it seemed like we might deviate from this tradition. And thankfully, we did not. But the idea that anybody could, anybody who wields such weapons could at some point decide to deviate from tradition in this way, I think it's still something that keeps a lot of military experts up at night, but it's also something that has captured the common awareness of even non-military people who know very little about the situation and the realities of such a thing, because it is such a nightmare scenario in so many different ways. And that's what I want to talk about today, not just nukes, but what they represent and how they have helped shape 
in a lot of different ways, the modern geopolitical landscape. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. This episode of Let's Know Things is brought to you by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT for Let's Know Things, LKT, you can get a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. Stay tuned till the end of the episode for a book recommendation. This episode is also brought to you by HostGator. If you go to hostgator.com slash LKT, you will receive a substantial discount off of their already very reasonable prices for their wonderful service. HostGator is the company that I use for all of my online hosting needs, and if you have similar needs, they are worth checking out. HostGator.com slash LKT. And this episode and every episode is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support the show monetarily or by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing it with a friend. All of these different means of contribution are immensely appreciated. If you go to letsknowthings.com, scroll down a little bit, you can find a bunch of different options, quick links, different ways that you can help support the show. Thank you so much to everybody who is already doing this. Thank you so much if you are considering doing it as well, in some way, shape, or form, whatever makes sense to you. And thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate you tuning in and geeking out with me every week. With that, let's get back to the show. So the article that I want to unspool today comes from the Washington Post, and the article is entitled, North Korea is racing towards the nuclear finish line. That's a fairly alarming headline, if you know anything about North Korea, or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is their official name, which is also hilarious. Amazing how many autocratic states out there have democratic in their name. But the situation is this. North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, has been officially at war with South Korea, which is a country that is best known for its electronics and its democratic tendencies. It plays well with most of the rest of the world, whereas its neighbor to the north does the exact opposite. It's kind of a, an autocratic, totalitarian hermit regime, essentially. And so they've been at war continuously since the Korean War, which took place in 1950 till 1953. And so that's a very long time to be locked in combat. And there was an armistice signed in 1953 that essentially says, hey, let's not kill each other anymore. But it's something that has kept the larger conflict from growing in a way, but, but it's not something that ended the war officially. And though there are plenty of forces in the South and around the world, including some of the North Korean government's best allies and only allies, that would love to see this conflict put aside, it is something that the North has not seemed fit to do thus far. And that is really disconcerting to a lot of people. This is something that, from what I've read about locals and about local culture, the young people in particular in South Korea 
do not feel that this is an ever-present blade above their neck. They don't walk around as if the last shoe could fall at any moment, despite the fact that it kind of could. And, And so they continue to operate as normally as one can under such circumstances. But it is something that is an incredibly tenuous situation. The capital of South Korea, Seoul, is located about 50 miles away from the border with North Korea. And so this is a city of 20 million people that is located within range of conventional artillery. Conventional artillery can lob giant shells that far and have been able to do so for quite some time. And so even with conventional weapons, and even leaving aside the massive population of North Korea's military, if things ever did get pushed further in the direction of direct conflict, the capital of South Korea would almost certainly go up in flames. There would be a lot of people dead with any type of conflict that goes beyond the norm. And so it's a very precarious situation for a great number of people. And that's part of what makes this such a difficult and tense region, is that if anything goes awry, if anything changes, if the balance shifts in any direction, there will almost certainly be a mass war crime that is perpetrated. And this is notable. In some places, the stability would be more certain. But in this peninsula, on the Korean peninsula, that stability is something that's always been under threat by the ambitions of the ruling family, the Kim family, of North Korea. And so 10 years ago, they conducted their first atomic bomb test. Kim Jong-il, which was the father of the current ruler of North Korea, he seemed to step quite carefully because he did have very close relations with the Chinese and seemed to be aware that it was in their best interest to keep things from spinning wildly out of control, and that if he took too many liberties that they might quash him or or just let him go and leave him at the mercies of the rest of the world. And China tended to be the, the greatest defender of North Korea, and still, in a lot of cases today, is in global events when it comes to global issues. And so Kim Jong-il stepped a little bit carefully, but still conducted these tests and got their atomic program going. But the current ruler, Kim Jong-un, has been pursuing nuclear weapons with fervor. He has conducted 49 nuclear tests in the last five years, which is something like twice as many tests as his father conducted in three times that amount of time. So he's really going for the gold with this, really investing a lot of money and resources, and really taking a lot of liberties that have been, in some cases, pissing off the Chinese and pissing off other nations that do not want to see this little hermit nation that is autocratic, that that is ruled by a ruling family, that does torture people, that does have a substantial number of human rights abuses, and those are only the ones that we know about that regularly loses great sums of its population from starvation and other natural disasters because they do not invest in the economy. They instead invest in great luxuries for the ruling class and invest in the weapons programs. And so this incredibly abusive government that that still exists in part because it's a valuable 
kind of rabid dog to be used by some of the larger players like Russia and China. It is a great contributor to imbalance in the region right now, and, and it has been since the 50s. But the recent events, the increased race toward that nuclear finish line, as is referred to in the Washington Post article, is alarming on a completely new level. Because it's worth noting that if you look back at the history of nuclear weapons, the atomic bombs that were dropped in Japan by the United States, these were great big clunky devices that had to be dropped by planes. And so there's kind of a limited utility to this type of thing in modern warfare. They can still be used, but the infrastructure required and the rate of failure is much higher than it would have been back then, today, because of of modern aeronautics and things of that nature. But what's happening now is that North Korea is achieving miniaturization, which means that they're able to actually reduce the size of this weapon to the point that it can fit on the tip of a missile. And that dramatically changes things. It changes the dynamics of the situation from the point where North Korea could cause great devastation on the Korean peninsula to the point where Korea, North Korea, that is, could cause great devastation, nuclear devastation, on a significant swath of the planet. And that takes them from being kind of an annoying regional threat that that is more than annoying to the people living in the area, but for the rest of the world, it's something that's not particularly relevant. And it elevates them to the point where they are relevant worldwide, and and not in a good way. They are relevant as a threat, not as something that anybody is welcoming onto the world stage. Here's a quote from that Washington Post article that illustrates pretty well how people are feeling about this change. Quote, The recent developments are alarming policymakers in neighboring countries and in the United States, leading to increasingly frequent talk about preemptive strikes, an option long considered so impossible it was hardly ever mentioned. And so that's, it's a very dramatic statement, the idea that we might preemptively strike a country that is not directly threatening us or not directly attacking us to prevent them from achieving the means of leveling that kind of devastation across a larger portion of the planet. Essentially trying to prevent them from achieving a weapon that would allow them to cause great devastation anywhere within a very large radius. It's something that dramatically goes against a lot of foreign policy, and not just the United States foreign policy, but really modern nuclear foreign policy. And what I mean by that is kind of the extension of what happened during the Korean War, where the United States decided not to use nukes in Korea or on China, and instead to save them as a deterrent against potential Soviet incursion and potential use of Soviet nuclear weapons as well. That move informed a lot of what happened after the fact. We have not seen nuclear weapons used in the field of battle since they were used on Japan at the end of World War II. So that's many, many decades where we've had a lot of these weapons available and increasingly tactical. We we have the ability to use them in an increasing number of ways, and they've never been used. 
And that says something about their utility as a political tool and as a tool that kind of protects you from ever being completely decimated or defeated in your home. If anybody ever invaded the United States, they would probably be nuked. If anybody ever nuked the United States, they would probably be nuked. And so as a deterrence, these things are like a failsafe. And that's the way that they've largely been used by the governments that have them. It's the way that they've been completely been used by the governments that have had them, which is why we haven't seen them used in any other way. If a country got them and then used them, they would lose that leverage and open themselves up to the risk of invasion or decimation by their enemies. And the consequence of this is that we actually have more peace across a larger swath of the world than ever before in history. This is one of the most peaceful times in modern human history. And this is something that you wouldn't know just reading the paper, because, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, as they say. They use any conflict to sell papers, and there are still conflicts going on, as there always have been across some part of the planet. But the number of conflicts and the damage and devastation caused by them has been shrinking, and it has gone down drastically, particularly large-scale conflicts like World War I and World War II, as a consequence of this type of nuclear deterrence-based policymaking and negotiation. Now, that's not the only reason that the number of wars and invasions and things have been going down. There was a time in our recent history, where there were a lot of invasions taking place in order to capture resources, to take treasure, to capture whatever wealth the enemy had. And this is how a lot of nations were built or how a lot of nations got big, whereas before they might have just been small in scale or a small group of people. This is what allowed them to enter the global stage and be taken seriously. This isn't the case anymore. Warfare today is very expensive because of the resources required to outgun the other guy, because of the base level precautions that are put in place, because of the alliances that are in place, where if you invade almost anybody, there are like 10 other nations that are compelled through policy to go to war with you. And it's also just no longer the case that invading someone actually nets you much of a victory. You might get a victory in terms of other countries being afraid of you, or taking out an enemy, or getting revenge. But in terms of resources, a lot of our resources, particularly in modern economies, are human and intellectual resources. And those aren't things that you can really capture through warfare, through conventional warfare. Those are things that are destroyed through warfare. And so it's no mistake that a lot of the conflicts, especially the larger scale ones that happen today, tend to be in regions that still produce commodities, that still produce raw materials rather than finished goods. And so a finished good is like an iPhone. That's something that if you capture the country that makes it, it's not like you suddenly own all iPhones and have cornered the iPhone market. It doesn't do you much good. Whereas if you invade a country that has uh, massive deposits of lithium, then you actually have cornered kind of a commodity market, and potentially that's something that is valuable to you. So there's parts of South America that should be watching out because 
a lot of these very finite lithium resources are based there. Now, thankfully, even in places like that where there are still commodities being generated, raw materials that are being mined from the earth, there are government entanglements and alliances, and there are a certain level of defenses everywhere, so that it's still very expensive to go to war, and typically much more lucrative for everyone involved just to trade, just to try to make some deals rather than going to war with each other. There's also the ever-present threat as a result of nuclear deterrence, as a result of these countries having nukes in their arsenal, that if very big governments get involved, if, for example, the U.S. were to go into total war against Russia, or total war against China, or total war against India or something, there is a chance that nukes could get lobbed, and they would either get lobbed at each other or at their proxy countries, at the the countries that they're kind of using as human shields and using as stand-ins for them. And part of the reason that we see a lot of proxy wars occurring, like what, what is happening currently in Syria, for example, and a lot of the wars that took place in the 90s, these are stand-in conflicts that allow great big nations to go to war with each other without feeling compelled to lob nukes at each other. And so when we see these types of conflicts where great big countries are sending weapons to different rebels and different governments and different interests in the region, what's happening is, in a lot of cases, these are great big governments that are flexing their muscles and trying to best one another, but doing it at the expense of another country and another country's infrastructure, another country's populace. And so it's really tragic and horrible. It would obviously be better if this did not occur. But on a certain scale, it would probably be much worse if, say, Russia and the United States went to war with each other directly in a total sense, because then the nukes would be involved. And so it's not a good thing that these proxy wars happen, but it is understandable on that scale that if you're going to go to war, this is what would make more sense to the people who have to be a little bit sociopathic in terms of how they think. A utilitarian view, I guess you could say, to try to save the planet from nuclear devastation by destroying the population of a a largely innocent country. Now, something else that we're seeing in addition to proxy warfare is the emergence of other means of striking at one's enemy. We've had spycraft of various sorts for a very long time, and some of these efforts have led to the proxy wars that we fight through intermediaries. But part of it has evolved into kind of a technologically based system where we're now using cyber warfare. We're hacking each other to try to steal information, to try to embarrass the other country or the other government. And in some cases, to even try to knock out their infrastructure in the same way that we might have once used a bomb to take out an electrical grid. Now there's evidence that we're using hacking and viruses and such to try to take out the infrastructure and resources and economies of our political enemies. This is something that's still evolving and growing. It's still relatively new, but it's something that, as far as we're able to tell, has been going on a lot longer than we've actually been reporting on it. And so there's a 
decent chance that cyber warfare will become kind of the, the new hotness in terms of being able to needle your opponent without being seen to do it. Because in a lot of cases, you can do it anonymously, or at least in a way that you can deny doing it, even if there's evidence that you did. And you can do it without provoking total war. It's also notable that there are an increased and increasing number of democratic states around the world today than there was even a few decades ago. And with all the flaws that modern systems of democracy, some more than others, but all of them have some flaws, uh, have, it's notable that democracies tend not to go to war with each other. And a big part of that is that it's just more profitable to trade with each other. It makes a whole lot more sense to try to make your fortune by trading with other people who have a similar market system, a market economy, and generally open values, values that, that basically say, even if we disagree with you on every point, we will still buy your televisions. But also because when there is a popular opinion that you have to take into consideration, very typically sending those people who vote to war is not a popular idea. And very typically trying to depose or overthrow an enemy who is also democratic is not something that goes over very well because it goes against the shared collective ideology that your people have. And so the spread of democracy has also led to a great deal less conventional war, because it's very unpopular to go to war in the conventional sense under such circumstances. Now, probably the final big thing worth mentioning that establishes the outline of the current worldwide situation, particularly as it relates to nuclear weapons and their non-usage is the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, or as it's commonly called, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT. This is a treaty that came into force in 1970, and it was extended indefinitely by the signatories in 1995. So North Korea signed the NPT in 1985, but it never complied with the treaty, and then it withdrew officially in 2003 after it detonated its first nuclear device. And that was obviously against the rules of the treaty, which I'll get into in a second. But it's worth noting that they basically said publicly, oh yeah, yeah, we're totally good with that. We, we don't want nuclear weapons to spread around the world. And then they detonate a nuclear weapon and say, yeah, booyah, we're not a part of this. So it gives you an indication of the type of government that they are. It's also worth noting that four other nations around the world never joined the NPT. They never signed on. And these nations are India, Israel, Pakistan, and the South Sudan. Those first three nations, India, Israel, and Pakistan, are all thought to have nukes, which is particularly terrifying to some, since India and Pakistan are chronically at each other's throats. And Israel is surrounded by countries it considers to be enemies and who feel the same about it. South Sudan does not have nuclear weapons, as far as we know, but we really don't know for certain with any of these countries because they are not compelled to tell anybody because they are not part of this treaty. Five nations who are signatories to the NPT are known to have nukes, and that includes the US, the UK, France, Russia, and China. Now think about that. That is five 
governments out of 191 governments who have signed that actually have nukes. Why would all these other countries sign on to it? And why would the countries that have nukes sign it? Well, the core principle of the Non-Proliferation Treaty Agreement is that those without nukes will not pursue them. They will not try to develop nuclear technology. And those with nukes will share their peaceful nuclear technologies, like power plants and radiation treatments, with those non-nuclear states who have signed the treaty. And those with nukes will also do their best, according to the treaty, to shrink the number of nuclear weapons in their arsenals over time, in the hopes of eventually reducing that number to zero. And so the incentive here for the people with nukes is to not allow more people to get nukes, and the incentive for the people without nuclear technologies to sign is to essentially give up the ability to develop it themselves, but to get handed a lot of these very advanced technologies, the non-weapon nuclear technologies, from the people who have spent all the time and money doing it. And so it's ostensibly something that's quite valuable for everyone involved. And the NPT, frankly, and unlike many other sprawling multinational efforts, has in large part worked pretty marvelously. It was actually estimated when it came into effect back in the 70s that by the 90s, like 25 to 30 different nations would have nuclear weapons. And so they were not terribly optimistic about how well this would work. They thought for sure a lot of that information would seep out into the ether, more people would get it on the black market, there would be more spies, like what happened in the United States, where spies would steal the technology and take it to another nation. And so they, they felt that they had every reason to believe that by the 90s, 25 to 30 nations would have it, and who knows how many by the year 2016. But instead, what actually happened is that today, there are only those eight that I mentioned before, nations that have nukes, plus the newly nuclear North Korea. And so nine in total that we know of. There's a chance that there are others out there that have it that are keeping it close to their vest. But it's likely that if there are such entities that what they have is maybe one or two devices that they got off the black market, because the development of a full-blown nuclear program is actually something that we know how to track pretty well in terms of tracking the equipment that they need, but also being able to track it from satellites, tracking the detonations and the other resources that they have to accumulate and develop to have such a program. And so it's incredibly fascinating to me that such a treaty would have worked so well. But I think because it is in the interest of so many different nations for so many different reasons, and the global economy and our communication and our larger scale flourishing, I guess, as a species, it does make sense to try to limit this to reduce the number of you know, planet-destroying weapons available. And it also makes sense for a lot of governments to get those technologies without having to put in all the effort and the crazy amount of resources that it actually takes to develop a full-blown nuclear program when they could just get that information from other countries that have already been there. Now, it's worth noting that nuclear weapons to many kind of represent the end of the world 
These are devices that, frankly, we, we could achieve a lot of the same ends with conventional weapons. Conventional weapons are immensely destructive. And e even if you look back at Japan, the majority of devastation that was leveled against the Japanese Empire at the time was done using conventional weapons. And they just blasted the hell out of so many Japanese cities using regular bombs. Non-nuclear weapons. And it just devastated the area. And so these nuclear weapons were impressive and crazy and different. But despite the fact that they are symbolically destructive and destructive in a slightly different way, in that they you know, cause a lot of long-term damage because of the radiation, they are not a unique threat. There's a lot of different ways that we could kill ourselves and kill every person on the planet and render the planet uninhabitable. We are, as a species, very good at coming up with ways to do that, frankly. But what nukes represent kind of psychologically as a symbol is almost more important than what they represent in terms of a military asset. Because of the way global politics is structured and because of the traditional, now traditional, post-World War II traditional use of these weapons, their use is as a symbol and as a deterrent. They are an implied threat much more than something that anybody thinks the other person will probably actually use. The consequences in the international community of using a nuke would be devastating to any country who did it. It would make them look like monsters, and, and the rest of the world would have every reason to unify against that country. And so, as a failsafe, they work splendidly, because the idea is that if you ever invade me, if anybody else ever comes in and we are losing a conventional war, we will use these weapons to destroy our enemy. And so they, they're like a dead man's switch in a lot of cases. And they, they represent the last-ditch effort that a country will use if they have to. But they will never be the first choice of any globally-minded member of the international community. And so what this looks like for much of the world is kind of a deadlock. Yes, the United States has a bunch of nukes. Yes, Russia has a bunch of nukes. Yes, China has an increasing number of nukes. So does India. So does Pakistan. But most people are not actually concerned about these governments using these things because it would be political suicide, geopolitical suicide to do so. And so what we really have to worry about are things like what Russia has done recently with their asymmetric warfare, going in and taking over parts of Ukraine by having soldiers going in who are unmarked, have no flag. It's almost anonymous and they can deny anything that links them to it, which makes it a very, very clever way to take territory in a modern global system where that's not a very easy thing to do. And the same is true with their cyber warfare efforts and the cyber warfare efforts being conducted by China, and no doubt the cyber warfare efforts that are being conducted by the United States, which the United States media largely ignores. These are the efforts that have become more relevant. These are the places that we tend to invest more of our money, because with that deadlock in place, we're good. It's not something that we need to continue to develop in most cases. In fact, it's something that we're trying to reduce. And instead, we're focusing our efforts on things like hacking and other types of very small, very surgical 
types of warfare. The ability to take over a country or go to war using 100 people instead of 100,000. I mentioned, by the way, the dead man switch element to all of this, and what the U.S. has is what's called the nuclear triad, where essentially the idea is that if somebody else hits us first with nukes or some other strike that takes us out or takes away our ability to respond in kind, we've always got something that's ready to hit them back, and so they will not be able to get away with it if they try. And our triad is having nukes based in bunkers and silos, so land-based nukes, but also in planes and also in submarines. And so the idea is that even if you do take out all of our silos somehow, which are well spread out and scattered and hidden, we've still got planes, we've still got subs. You take out any one or even two of these types of platforms, you're still screwed. And other countries have done the same. They've put into place infrastructure that will allow them to hit back if they're ever hit, which reinforces the idea that these are weapons used for retaliation and as a preventative measure, not as something that they actually intend to use in a first strike or conventional warfare scenario. The result of the way nuclear policy and nuclear tradition and global politics has pushed us It's a weird situation in which war still happens, particularly in places where there's still raw materials as the primary wealth, because that can be taken by the winner, or in places that are maybe politically influential in the region so that they can be used as proxies by larger nations. But the larger countries have enough doomsday devices pointed at each other, and there are enough alliances webbed throughout the planet that if we ever go to war, if there's ever a serious global all-in war, the devastation would be so complete that no one would win. No one would come out on top. And so everyone involved is incentivized not to push things that far, not to go so completely down that spiraling hole that we cannot return things to normalcy. Now, some people are rabidly anti-nuke. Which, which makes sense, which makes a lot of sense. Trying to reduce the number of nukes on the planet, I think, is an excellent ambition. And there have been agreements between Russia and the U.S. in particular, where most of the nukes are hoarded, that have basically been agreements to slowly take apart our respective arsenals. And that's not always the direction it goes, but in most cases, the numbers have been trending downward in recent years. That said, there's still about 22,000 nuclear weapons in possession of these nuclear states that we know of. But again, there are good arguments that this state of affairs, though if you think about it, it's absolutely batshit crazy, but there's arguments that it's responsible for a lot of the peace that we now enjoy internationally. This is an uneasy standoff And we are all essentially standing on bombs that could end the planet. But it's almost like we've got a god that could actually smite us if we misbehave, that's watching us all, and that keeps everyone from going too far. If we squabble, that's one thing. But if we actually stand a chance of going too far, he's made it very clear that he will strike us down with lightning bolts. That's kind of how it feels 
except we don't always know exactly what's going to set this particular god off. And that's what's terrifying about it. Because there have been situations, historically, where we've almost accidentally triggered that doomsday scenario. And there's the potential that we could do so in the future. There are efforts to try to stabilize the situation, but anything that's done that delays, say, a counter-strike is something that actually weakens the incentive for people not to use these things in wartime. Because the idea is that then the enemy might think they could get away with a preemptive strike. And that might encourage them to break the deadlock. And so this is something that in innumerable different ways could very easily lead to not just bad consequences, but world-ending consequences at some point. But so far, thankfully, the consequences have been relatively beneficial, largely positive. We do not, however, know of any way to get away from this system now that we've put it in place. And in fact, if anything destabilizes the balance that we've created, it's almost like we're all standing on stools and around us are like bear traps scattered around the floor. And we're all kind of precariously balancing on these tiny little stools, like trying to trade with each other and talk to each other and not shove each other too hard, even when we're angry. But if anyone sets off one of these bear traps, then they all start snapping and grabbing at our legs. And we do not know now that we've set up all these bear traps between us, how to take that system apart without accidentally falling prey to it as we do so. And so there's been movement towards disarmament, but even that is kind of just a publicity thing until we could actually figure out what replaces it. And at the moment, I'm not aware of anything that has been presented that would make a viable alternative at this point. It is not ideal that we live under this potential looming threat that could happen at any point and destroy a significant portion of the human population and render portions of the planet completely uninhabitable. But if you take apart any piece of that, if you destabilize it in any way, we run a very real risk of somebody who still has nukes during the decommissioning period trying to take over, or people using these as a first strike for more conventional warfare, or even just some crazy person getting their hands on one of these decommissioned weapons and using it as, a, as part of a terrorist plot or something along those lines. And so this is a very dangerous box that we're living inside, but we have not come up with anything that would allow us to get away from it quite yet. And that's going to be one of the big challenges of the next century, is trying to figure out what that next step looks like. A non-mutually assured destruction-powered global peace. And this, by the way, this situation, the precariousness of our global geopolitics as it relates to the potential for violence and devastation at any moment if we take a wrong step, this is why North Korea getting nukes is such a horrible thing. It's not even necessarily because they might use them, though they might. They, as a country, as a government, have a lot less to lose than most other nuclear-enabled countries. And so if they break that seal and decide to start using them conventionally or as a first strike, 
that could dramatically shift the way that we perceive the use of these weapons. That could be something that leads to their mainstreaming and makes them more palatable and normalizes their use by other countries. Or more likely, it could just be the type of thing that gives them a collection of of crazy dictators an outsized presence on the world stage, and potentially one that allows them to get away with more, to kind of in a way hold the world hostage, particularly those in their immediate vicinity, because they have such destructive capability. And again, the same destruction could be leveled with conventional weapons, but psychologically, a nuke is such a bigger deal. And if they used a nuke on one of those massively populated South Korean cities, that would be immense devastation. The number of lives lost would be absolutely insane. And the ability to do that gives them power. Because then suddenly everyone will start to treat them as the type of country that has a, a much bigger gun than economy. Even if you do not respect the person who is mugging you, you respect the fact that they could end your life if they want to. And so that person might not be anything compared to who you are economically or compared to who you are socially, but the fact that they've got a gun to your head changes the way that you interact with them. And that's what North Korea has the potential to become, particularly if they are able to master the miniaturization of nuclear weapons. And on the broader scale, having that type of entity in the international community could do a whole lot to destabilize the balance that we've managed to achieve over the past several decades. This balance is what has allowed us to largely operate peacefully with each other. Even when we completely disagree with everything another culture does or feels or believes, how they interact with other cultures, we still have a certain sense of how we act toward them. And particularly on a government scale, on a policy scale, on a geopolitical scale, there are standards and there are norms. And if those are disrupted by a newcomer with a gun, essentially, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. There's a lot of accidents that could happen. There's a lot of abuses that could take place. And there's a lot of things that people could do using North Korea and their position as an excuse as well. Now, again, it's worth noting that these other emergent means of destabilizing our enemies have the potential to upset this balance in their own way. And what I mean by that is the proxy wars and the the kind of asymmetric cloak and dagger type stuff that we're seeing around the world today, but we saw a lot more even back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, where we overthrew foreign governments and we armed foreign rebels and a lot of the crazy spy stuff that we romanticize today. A lot of that stuff has occurred and a lot of it has allowed us to avoid conventional war, yes, but it has also at times destabilized relationships between countries and even put us closer to a war footing at times. It's worth noting that the Korean War, in fact, started out being called a military action rather than calling it a war for that exact reason, because we did not want to seem like we were committing to a total war. We wanted it to be something that was 
some violence and some conflict, but not something we had to commit to, not something that would upset relations between the bigger governments that were involved. And so once again, a smaller proxy suffers the consequences in a lot of ways because the bigger governments are trying to avoid having to stomp around and flex too much, potentially putting themselves in the situation where they have to do something that causes permanent damage to not just their enemy, but to everyone. And we're beginning to see other new methods of this asymmetric warfare. Cyber warfare has proven to not just be effective, but also relatively covert, which is useful in a world partially shaped by this kind of mutually destructive standoff. And there's a chance that these new methods will come to replace, maybe, almost entirely, the physical proxy wars that take place around the world, at least in places with no obvious and portable raw materials that are worth taking. But it's worth remembering that, to some, nukes are the asymmetric approach. Some countries, like Pakistan, for example, and seemingly North Korea, have adopted a stance of asymmetric escalation, which means that they would consider using nukes against a conventional military attack, which is very much not the policy of other nuclear nations, and that is what helps keep things in balance. And so Pakistan and, and North Korea, seemingly, is basically saying, if you fight us at all, there's a chance that we'll nuke you. Whereas a, a larger country like China or the United States would basically say, if you invade us and if we are at having an existential crisis, maybe we'll use nukes. If you use nukes, then we'll use nukes. But otherwise, we're not going to. We will fight you using conventional weaponry. Now, optimistically, I would like to think that we're all sane enough. That is, we all have enough to lose and are rational enough actors to see that the consequences of using nukes would dramatically outshine the benefits gained by using them. But for some, this isn't the case. Either they have very little to lose because of their existing position, or they find themselves thusly armed, and their position is in jeopardy, and they decide that if they can't have everything they want, then neither can anyone else. This is why nuclear non-proliferation, despite being a bad option for many reasons, because it basically formalizes a dead man switch standoff, has proven to be one of the best of many bad directions we could go, one of the most overall beneficial situations we could find ourselves in, all things considered. I have no idea how long its umbrella of protection will keep us safe from nuclear-tipped missiles, however. At some point, we will need to figure out something a little less tenuous and a little more resilient, particularly to the non-rational or maybe the neo-rational, those with a rationality based on completely different ideologies and priorities than traditional international actors have, we need to ensure that we find a situation that is rational to all of these people, to all of these groups and all of these interests. My thought is that one of the better directions that we can go is to try to make sure that everyone has plenty to lose, essentially, that we all have lifestyles. Everyone on the planet has a certain level of living, a certain lifestyle quality, a certain standard that is worth 
living for that if they go to war, they will lose. And, and as such, we will all be a lot less likely then to want to lose that just to, you know, have a pissing contest against another country or to try to take something that is not ours or even to try to prove the superiority of our method or religion or philosophy or whatever else over somebody else. The idea of going to war over something like that would not make sense because of what we would be giving up to do it. And I think that would be one of the better directions to go because simply pursuing that direction also has its own inherent consequences that are largely positive, that more people in more places live well. It's, it's hard to say if that would completely dissuade certain people and if we could even make something like that happen, particularly in places like North Korea, where a lot of the people are kind of kept uh, in, in as close to human bondage as we find in much of the modern world. But it's something worth considering. It's, it's one of hopefully what will be many options that we come up with over the next several decades in an effort to try to remove that dead man switch, but to do it in such a way that we don't set off a cataclysm in doing so. This episode of Let's Know Things was brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I've been using for many years to host all of my various websites and blogs and so on. It is a delightful company to work with, lots of friendly people over there, all of my interactions with them and customer support and such over the years has been delightful. They also have great prices, great stats on things like uptime and, and things of that nature, but really they just have a wonderful ease of use. It is a company that I am happy to tell people about and to work with as a customer and now as somebody who promotes them on my podcast. So if you want to check out what they have to offer, if you're thinking of building a website for your business or for your photography or to start a blog, go to hostgator.com LKT. You can see some of what they have to offer and you can also get a substantial discount just for being a listener of Let's Know Things. So again, that's hostgator.com LKT. This episode was also sponsored by Audible. Audible contains more audiobooks than you could possibly listen to in a lifetime. It is a ridiculous and excellent collection. They have a great app that allows you to listen to an audiobook at slightly different speeds. I've actually taken to listening to some nonfiction books at 1.25 times the normal speed. So just a little bit sped up, but it helps with some of the longer books that have a somewhat slower plotting narrator, particularly for some of these really chunky tomes that I, I like to read. One such tome is a book that I would like to recommend today. It is a book called Sapiens, and the subtitle is A Brief History of Humankind. This is by Yuval Noah Harari, and this is a book that it, it's not particularly brief, but it is brief in the context of telling the story of a species. I listened to this recently over the course of many long walks and a couple of road trips, it weighs in at over 15 hours of listening time if you listen to the audiobook version, and it is just loaded with fascinating insights into the history of the species, kind of on a biological level all the way up to like modern philosophy and economics and things of that nature. The collective illusions that we've built as a species that allow us to interact with each other and produce on the level that we produce. 
So very, very fascinating revelations contained in this book. It is a lovely overview with a lot of depth of thought involved. And if you want to check it out, you can get it at your local indie bookstore or library or Kindle or Kobo. But if you do want to listen to the audiobook like I did, it's worth checking out Audible. You can go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, and that will net you a free month of the service, but you can also get any audiobook from their collection of something like 200,000 audiobooks for free. And that means you can get this book, which is usually 20-something dollars as an audiobook, for free. So it's a good way to get a free 15 hours or so of entertainment if you are into that type of nerdery the way that I am. But you can also get any other book on their service, so it's, it's worth checking out either way if you haven't already. That's audibletrial.com LKT. This podcast is supported by folks checking out those sponsors, so I appreciate it if you have done so or are considering doing so. But it's also kept afloat by people contributing directly. Thank you so very much to everybody who has already done this, who have contributed monetarily, or who have helped support the show by leaving reviews on iTunes or sharing it with your friends. If you would like to contribute, you can go to letsknowthings.com and scroll down a little bit. There's a bunch of different options there, everything from contributing like a dollar an episode or a certain amount per month or leaving a review, or sharing it with your friends. You can do your Amazon shopping through a link that I have there, and I'll get some affiliate fee that won't raise your prices, but it it gives me like a little finder's fee. So there's a lot of different ways to do it if you're enjoying the show, and it is very much appreciated if you are able to do so. Either way, thank you very much for just showing up and listening. That's also very much appreciated. If you'd like to find out more about me and the work that I do, You can go to colin.io, there you will find links to my other projects and also to my books that I've written, which is another good way to contribute, by the way, if you're looking for a book to read. If you buy one of mine, that helps me do what I do. I also have a blog called Exile Lifestyle, which is at exilelifestyle.com, and a YouTube show called Consider This, which you can find on YouTube. You can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet, all the social networks, at Colin is my name. If you would like to check out the show notes for this particular podcast episode or for any episode, you can go to letsknowthings.com. There you can also sign up for the free Let's Know Things newsletter. If you're not getting that already, you are totally missing out. That is where I curate and deliver a collection of some of the most interesting things I have read over the past couple of weeks. Again, it's free. It's worth checking out. It's just something that I enjoy sharing with people because I enjoy sharing interestingness. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm